This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Let's return to our seats. Open up your Bibles to Matthew if you have one, or open your devices to Matthew. My name is Craig. If we haven't met, um, welcome. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's just a joy to have you with us. We are in the early parts of a study of Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, uh, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first uh, teaching section of the Gospel of Matthew, and today we'll be looking at verses 17 through 20. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to that, and you'll be able to track along with us. If you don't have a Bible, uh, there's one under the seat in front of you. Please take that out, and you can turn to page 473 if you um, don't own a Bible, just take that Bible with you. That's our, that Bible's our gift to you, so please uh, take it with you if you don't uh, own one. Uh, so let me tell you what we've talked about so far in the Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll jump into today. Uh, so far, we've uh, seen that Jesus has begun by describing life in the kingdom. It's what he calls the blessed life. So Jesus come, comes, and he is the king, and he's introducing the kingdom, which is not a geopolitical uh, nation. It's not a nation state or uh, somehow geographical boundaries, but this kingdom he's bringing is, uh, is found wherever people uh, are under his rule and worship him and follow him. So he's bringing the kingdom of God, or the, he calls it the kingdom heaven of heaven. They're synonymous. And he's described uh, to his new followers that this life is an upside-down kingdom, that what the blessed life really looks like, what the good life really looks like, is different than what the culture surrounding them and surrounds us defines as the good life. So he says, for instance, blessed are the poor in spirit, that is, blessed are those who see their need for God. Blessed are those who mourn for their sin, they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger for righteousness. So these, he's saying this is what life in the kingdom is really life like, both now and for eternity. And then after that, he says, when you live in the kingdom, when you live this kind of life, you are going to be salt and light in your culture. Salt speaks of distinctiveness. You're going to stand out from the culture, sort of flavor the culture like salt would to your food. It's going to be different, and you're going to be light. You're going to shine in the darkness as you represent Christ. Um, so he says that, and then today's section, verses 17 through 20, this begins a section that runs really from 17 to 48, where he talks about the law. And he's talking here about his relationship with the Old Testament. So let's look at that and see what, how Jesus defines this most important aspect of his ministry, his relationship to uh, what we call the Old Testament. They would have simply thought of it as the Hebrew Bible. It's what comes before uh, the book of Matthew uh, in the Old Testament. So here is God's holy word to us. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law... Or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is all accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. 
God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we look at this passage today, you would open our eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ and his glory. We pray that you would adjust our thinking. We pray that you would give us hearts to hear, willing ears to listen, hearts to hear, and hearts to respond to your word. I pray that you'd grant me strength to declare the good news here faithfully and that you'd give us all hearts to respond to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the holiday season is, uh, is upon us, and I know that because um, before the kids were out of their Halloween costumes, I was, already, I was actually seeing uh, Black Friday ads. So we're not even done with one word to the other. And so this means that Thanksgiving is coming and Christmas is coming. It's a time of the year when families often gather together and spend time together. And uh, so it's a special time of the year. And one of the things that some families do when they get together uh, is uh, they play games together. Uh, Board games, party games, family members that don't see each other that often are sort of thrust upon one another uh, and then choose often to play games. So how many of you, you think it's a good chance this Thanksgiving, this Christmas, you'll, your family will probably play some kind of game? How many of you? Yeah, okay, that's a lot. That's most everybody uh, in the room. So there are two types of people in the world. There are rule followers and there are rule breakers. Everybody's in one of these camps. When I say rule breakers, I don't mean people breaking the civil law and, you know, committing grievous crimes. I just mean people who view policies and practices as just kind of a suggestion to be considered rather than a rule to be followed. And you can tell someone immediately which camp they're in when the new game is unboxed. Nobody's played it before. It's the new hot season, you know, uh, Christmas favorite. And the game is unboxed, and then you start to set up the board and the pieces, and you start to play, and someone says, hey, look, you know, let's just kind of start playing, and just we can kind of read as we go and see how to do this. And instantly, someone else is deeply offended by that thought and says, no, 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 no. Let me read the rules. We're, we're going to read the rules before we play the game. And I'm going to go photocopy the rules. And everybody's going to have a copy of the rules. And everybody's going to sign and have notarized their copy of the rules so that we all know what the rules are. Those of you who aren't laughing, you're that person, Okay. <laughs> And like all of your relatives, they're talking about it afterwards, just so you know. Hyper rules woman or hyper rules guy. And so this is especially the kind of person that comes in that's just like your cousin, your aunt, your uncle. Grandparents would never be this way, but maybe your kids or somebody. They're this way, right? And they're, they're concerned. They're looking around and say, wait a minute, how could you even think? Just roll the dice and start going and we'll figure it out as we go. Don't you care about the rules, they think? That's what's going on in this passage with Jesus. Some people think Jesus doesn't care about the rules. Or maybe, they're they're suspicious, maybe he's creating new rules. Maybe he's coming and creating all brand new rules. And in verse 17, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. The law and the prophets is shorthand for the Old Testament. Now, there's also the writings, but when it's used shortly like this, the law and the prophets, it means all the Old Testament. And so some people are wondering about, is Jesus really upholding the rules? The ones who are wondering are mentioned in verse 20, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, 
the rule keepers, the, those who are ensuring that they are keeping the rules and seeking to encourage everyone else to keep the rules as well. They are the ones he has in view here. They're wondering, Jesus, don't you care about the rules? Don't you care about the law? Are you some sort of like self-appointed rabbi who just shows up here to create a new religion, to just bring all kinds of new practices and rules, or do you really care? Are you really going to enforce the rules? Are you like one of these authors who kind of comes in and tries to grab you with their title? Jesus, are you preaching a sermon series or writing a book called Everything You Know About the Old Testament is Wrong, and you're going to sort of offer your take on it all. Jesus, do you respect the Bible? Do you respect the story of the Bible? Are you doing something all new? See, here's the question. With the coming of Jesus, are we just taking the story of the Bible to this point and sort of just wadding it up and throwing it away and starting fresh all over again? No, says Jesus. He says, I have not, verse 17, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, to to destroy them, to do away with them. I have come to fulfill them. I've come to fulfill all that is promised in the Old Testament. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not coming to write a brand new story. I'm coming to fulfill God's redemption story. I'm continuing God's redemption story. And he's going to say, as we go through this passage and through this whole sermon, he's going to say, he's also inviting us into that story. So he is fulfilling God's redemption story. And he is inviting others into that story to experience his kingdom reign, to experience his rule, to live the life that God created them to live, restored and renewed in God and part of his kingdom. So first of all, I really want to talk about two things, how Jesus fulfills the story, and then I want to talk about how he calls us into that. So first of all, Jesus fulfilling the story. If you're new to the Bible, or even if you're not for that matter, the Bible can sort of feel like a random collection of different types of literature. So there's, there's stories of history in one section, and then there are, there's like descriptions of worship practices, and then there's poetry, and then there's prophets who, are, who seem kind of like an angry lot, don't they? They're coming and telling everybody what's wrong with the world, and then there's apocalyptic stories about, wow, these visions, and is that all about the end of the world or what? And you can sort of, uh, if no one's ever helped you, you can sort of look at the Bible and think it's just this random collection of things that I'm not sure how, if it even fits together. But that's not the way the Bible is. The Bible is actually one story. It's one long story, and the various stories that we read are stories connected to the greater story along the way. And it's a story of a king who creates a universe. God creates everything by the word, by speaking the word of creation. And he creates a man and a woman, and he puts them in a garden paradise. Adam and Eve, he puts them in this garden paradise, and everything is perfect. Uh, He is present with them. So they have a relationship with God that is perfect. They have a relationship with one another that is perfect. They have a relationship with their environment that is perfect. And God is present. That's the great news about the Garden of Eden. God is present with his people. The people can interact with the king who created it all. But only three chapters in, the whole story goes south. Three chapters in, Satan comes in. He tempts Adam and Eve. He tells them, hey, look, 
don't listen to the story God is writing. Uh, Why don't you write your own story? That's really been the appeal to every one of us ever since. Why don't you determine your own destiny? Why don't you write your own ticket? Why don't you kind of make your own way without reference to God? Why Why don't you be your own God is what he in essence tells them. And they do that. They eat of the tree, which is forbidden them. And what happens at that point is that death enters the creation, and though they don't die instantly, God expels them from the garden. They are removed from the king's presence. And so from the very beginning of the story, there is this question, will will the people ever be rejoined to their wonderful king? Will they always be distanced and separated from his presence? Will the relationship remain broken, or will it be restored? And so what happens is a number of years later, um, God calls a man. His name's Abram. Later, he's called Abraham. And he comes to him and he says, listen, I am going to make you a great nation. It's a wonderful story. Abram wasn't even looking for God. God looks to him and says, I'm going to make you a great nation. So you're going to have all these descendants. You're going to have a land. And through your descendants, I'm going to bless the whole world. That was a good day when he heard those, that news. And so he tells him, tells him this, and then from Abraham comes the nation of Israel. Then Israel goes into, uh, through a number of series, I'm leaving out big parts of the story, uh, but Abraham, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, Israel ultimately goes into slavery, and God raises up someone to free them from slavery. His name is Moses. He frees his people. Uh, He takes them into the area where the land he promised to Abraham, Abraham is, and then what he does with Moses is he gives the people a law. He gives them a law that tells them uh, how they are to worship him, tells them how they are to treat one another, um, uh, and it tells them how their sins can be forgiven as well. And in this law, God tells Moses, here's what you're going to do. You're going to build this sort of temporary structure called the tabernacle. And in that tabernacle, there's going to be one small section, one kind of room called the Holy of Holies, and I am going to dwell in that section with my people, in that little cordoned-off room. God is saying, I'm going to come, I'm going to provide a way for you to be forgiven, and I'm going to come into your presence. You're going to camp around me. Once again, his presence comes to his people in a unique way. Well, later they build a temple. The same thing is true. There's a holy of holies in the temple. The people can't see God in the holy of holies. It can only be entered once a year by the high priest. He goes in one time a year and goes before the presence of God in a unique way to make atonement for all the people and their sins, his own as well. So this glorious king is now dwelling in the midst of his people, and he begins to send prophets to them. He's done this all along, but he sends messengers, I'll call them that, prophets, they're messengers. He sends messengers saying, look, I am going to make all things new. I am going to restore uh, my presence among you in a way that's, that's different than this. Uh, I am going to restore all that was lost in the Garden of Eden. I'm going to restore it. But the people, they hear the promises, but they can't wait on the promises. The people want something now. The people want something in front of them that they can see and taste and experience now. They don't want to live off a promise. They want something real now. And so they begin to chase other gods and worship other gods and, and, and follow the gods of other nations. And really, the unthinkable happens. God comes again and appeals to them. They've left his laws. They've left his worship. He's appealing to them, but they continue to go on their way. And the Lord does this unthinkable. He removes his presence again. He allows foreign nations to come in and destroy the temple. 
to tear it down and destroy it and to cart off his people into foreign nations ruled by foreign gods. Then, by grace, he brings them back to the land. They rebuild the temple, and they wait, and they wait. And there's a period of time for about 400 years where he sends no prophets. They're just living off the previous promises that one day he will come, one day he will restore all things, one day he will restore what was lost in the Garden of Eden. And it's at that part of the story that Jesus shows up. Jesus shows up, and he is God in the flesh, He is truly God. He is truly man. And he goes by the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So now we're not talking about a holy of holies. Now we're not talking about uh, a vision here or a prophetic word there. Now we're talking about God in the flesh, in the presence of his people. Jesus comes saying things like this, or John says of Jesus, that he tabernacled among the people. That is, that that holy of holies where God dwelt, that is Jesus. That the holy of holies has come in the flesh and is living like the tabernacle among the people. Jesus actually called himself the temple. That he is God, that he is the temple, that all the temple represented is being fulfilled in him. And then when we get to this sermon, his first sermon, first recorded teaching in the book of Matthew, he says, I am here to fulfill that redemption story. I am here, God in the flesh, to restore what was lost from the very beginning. That's why in verse 17, he says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I'm not coming as one who is detached from the story. I'm in the story. I'm the fulfillment of the story. I'm God who has come to, as the king, to bring the kingdom Matter of fact, he goes on to say in verse 18, uh, truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. He's saying to those who question him, who don't think he's not keeping the rules and not enforcing the rules, he's saying, look, I'm not separate from the Old Testament. I'm not, you know, I'm not doing away with the Old Testament Bible. I'm going to tell you that there's not even one letter of the Old Testament that'll pass away. Forget a letter. There's not a dot as a portion of a letter that'll pass away, that I am coming with that law and I'm coming to fulfill that law. So all those who are raising questions, he's making that point to them. Jesus comes to continue God's saving work. Jesus comes to fulfill all of the hope, all of the promises of the Old Testament, all the longings of the people. He comes to bring God's presence. He is God's presence among the people. So how does he do this? Verse 17. Do not think I've come to abolish the Old Testament. I've come to fulfill it. How does he do this? Well, firstly, he fulfills it because he makes the point elsewhere that all the Old Testament is ultimately about him. This really helps when we think it's kind of random. There's all these very different things. If we read the Old Testament through the, through the lens of Christ and we say, okay, how does this connect to God's grace? How does this connect to God's redemption? What does this tell us about our need for a Savior? What promises here of what God is going to do? When we think of it that way, when we look for uh, sort of uh, how, how stories point to Christ, then the Old Testament really comes alive to us, and we see it is part of this singular story. So in Luke's gospel, at the end of it, Jesus is resurrected, And he encounters a couple of people walking on the road to Emmaus, and they begin to talk to him. And it's a funny story because they're telling him about this guy that has died, 
and he's like that guy, but he's alive. Jesus, a fully God, fully man, and they're talking to the man, and Jesus uh, begins to reveal himself to them, tell who he is, that he's this resurrected Jesus. And in Luke 24, Luke writes, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, that's what we're reading here, right? The law and the prophets. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning him. Jesus said, grab your Hebrew Bibles, guys, and let's walk through the first five books, the law. Let's walk through the history. Let's walk through what all the prophets say. And let me show you how it all has to do with me, how it all points to me, how I fulfill all that is written there. And so Jesus fulfills numbers of parts of the Old Testament. I'm not going to develop this out for the sake of time, but just a couple that would be helpful. And when Jesus calls himself the temple, he's saying, I am the presence of God among you, that you don't need a, another way to get to God. You get to God through me. I am God, and you come through me to the Father. He, he, he is the sacrifice. He's called the Lamb of God. In the Old Testament, animals were sacrificed um, for people's sins, for the forgiveness of sins. But Jesus comes as the one, and he himself is sacrificed. So he is the temple. He is the sacrifice. He makes a way for us to connect with God. He All of the stories of the Old Testament that show God saving his people, God delivering his people, whether it's the Exodus or whether it's the judges or wherever there is a freedom and a redemption and a rescue, it all points to Jesus who brings ultimate rescue. He says, all the stuff you've read, it all points to me. It all points to me. So he fulfills the law because he is the hope of the Old Testament. He is the, what the Old Testament points to. What they, what they figure and foreshadow, he is the reality of. Secondly, he fulfills the law by obeying it completely. Adam and Eve were given a law from God, one law, not to eat from a certain tree, and they defied God. They rebelled against God. They did what they wanted to do. Jesus completely obeys God and his word, his father. He says at one point, he only does what he sees the father doing. He restores, he comes in obedience, which overturns and restores the disobedience of Adam. That's why we sang this in one of our songs today. That's why Jesus is the true and better Adam. He's called the second Adam. Why? Because he comes as a man in place of the first Adam, and he obeys where the first Adam failed. He, he ab abides by God's word where the first Adam went his own way to do his own thing. Jesus comes to obey the law that we have all broken, and he does it perfectly. In verse 48, at the end of this section that we're starting today, he says, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. No one has been, but Jesus was. He was whole, he was complete, and he faithfully obeyed. God's word. So he fulfills the Old Testament because he is the, um, he's the object of all of its promises and all that it points forward to. Secondly, he comes to obey the law. He fulfills it because he comes in obedience to win back to restore what Adam lost. And thirdly, he dies for uh, for us, taking the penalty of the law. So he law dies for lawbreakers. Jesus dies on the cross, and he is dying to pay the penalty for our breaking the law. He is receiving what we deserve. He is taking the condemnation that is owed us. 
And in dying in our place, when God's judgment is poured out upon his son, Jesus, he is experiencing a separation from God so that we may be restored to God. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He knows a distance from his father. Why? Because he's being judged for our sins so that we can be restored to our father. He is separated that we may be united. He is distanced that we may be brought near. He is judged that we may be declared righteous. He pays that we may be forgiven. So this is how he completes the law. This is called the curse of the law. There was a curse for breaking the law. We all deserve that because we have broken God's law, and Jesus receives that curse in our place. He's separated so that we can be restored to the presence of God. For it is the relationship with God, it is His presence that we've been separated from. And when Jesus dies on the cross, the temple curtain tears into the curtain that separated us from the Holy of Holies, the curtain that separated us from the presence of God. It is torn, indicating to us that by faith in Christ, we have access where we never have access before. We have access to God the Father. We have access to his presence. More than that, his spirit comes to live inside us. It is symbolic of the truth that we are restored to what was lost in the garden, the, pre- the presence of God. The king has come among his people. The king has paid the price for the condemnation of his people. The king has laid down his life for those of us, all of us who have broken the law. Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. He's the one prophesied about. He's the one who fulfills the law. Verse 18, he says, Truly I say to you that the law will continue until all is accomplished. And he's the one who comes and accomplishes the fulfillment of the law. He goes on to say, Whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying, I don't come to relax the law. I'm not lowering the law. I'm not saying the law doesn't matter anymore. I'm not saying we're on a new plan. Uh, like the law, we just, there's nothing. Uh, the Old Testament sort of just completely in the rearview mirror with no relevance to us. I'm fulfilling all of that. He doesn't lower the truth of the law. He doesn't relax it. And those who esteem God's law esteem God. Those who have low esteem for God's law have low esteem for God himself. Jesus is coming not to sort of create a, a new story, but to fulfill God's redemption story. To be sure, there's new aspects of it. We don't have sacrifices anymore. He is the sacrifice. So there's something new and better about the new covenant, but it's not detached from the old covenant. It's the continuation of one story. This is important because we cannot pit Jesus against the Old Testament. He won't allow that. We frequently hear that. I love Jesus, but I don't like the God of the Old Testament. I like gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I don't like the angry, sort of flippant God going around harming people in the Old Testament. Listen, Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus, doesn't, Jesus is not ashamed of the Old Testament. Jesus doesn't detach himself from the law and prophets. Christ says, rather, I am the fulfillment of all that you find there. The king who has come to his people is fulfilling the promises of the Old Covenant, and he's calling us to be a part of God's redemptive story. Now, where do I see that? In what ways is God calling us into his redemptive story? Well, it's, it's all over the Gospels. But here, he's trying to show what entrance into the kingdom looks like. 
Verse 20, he makes a shocking statement. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It is hard for us to appreciate how crazy that sounded into the ears of the first hearers. The scribes, they are experts in the law. They can tell everybody how the law applies to every aspect of their life. The Pharisees, they are, they're on the all-star team. They are the most godly people in everyone's eyes. These are the chief religious people. They are meticulous at following the law. They have problems with Jesus. They are meticulous at following God's law. They, they follow God's law to the extreme. Here's an example. The Old Testament requires uh, the Israelites to fast one day a year, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, fast one day a year. Well, the Pharisees say, you know what? We're going to fast two days a week. Two days a week. That's 104 days out of the year. I thought intermittent fasting was kind of a new thing. No, that's been going on. They were doing 104 days a year. They were fasting. So let's take God's requirement, multiply it by 104, and that's what we're going to do. So everybody looks at them and goes, whoa. Can't imagine what it would be like to be that holy, that devoted to God. In the children's Bible, the Jesus Storybook Bible, which I highly recommend, uh, the author there, Sally Lloyd-Jones, uh, she, she refers to the scribes and the Pharisees as, quote, the extra super holy people. <laughs> Jesus says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness, verse 20, exceeds that of the extra super holy people, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Think about the most holy person you know. Maybe it's your grandma. Maybe it's a Bible teacher that you love. Maybe it's someone you, it's, and, and he's saying, your righteousness has to way exceed that person's to enter the kingdom of heaven. That, that is shocking news. How can Jesus be speaking of a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, this only makes sense if he's talking about a different kind of righteousness. It only makes sense if the scribes and Pharisees' idea of righteousness is off, if it's wrong. Remember how Jesus started his teaching, speaking ministry in Matthew. It's back in chapter 4. We've looked at it every week. In Matthew 4, 17, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent means turn. So he said, you're all walking this way, but I'm telling you the king has showed up. He's bringing his rule and reign. So turn towards him. Turn towards him. Move towards him. Turn your position. Turn your direction to him. That's what he begins with. You're thinking, living, focusing this way, turn towards Jesus. And then in his first teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, that we have recorded, the first verse, the first thing he says, the, the first thing out of his mouth, verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, chapter 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We saw that that means blessed are those who see their need for God, who know their need for God. Jesus starts his teaching ministry, repent. You're headed this way, you've got to turn a different direction to me, and it all starts with you seeing your need for God. It all starts with being aware 
of your need. That's the key. Verse 3 is really the key to understanding verse 20, that he's talking about a different kind of righteousness. The kind of righteousness Jesus is talking about is the kind where we turn from ourselves and we turn to him and we see our need and we realize that we can't produce the righteousness that we need. The most righteous people have produced something that's entirely insufficient because they are not perfect. Their righteousness is below what it should be. Their righteousness is just is external only. That's why in chapter 23 of Matthew, Jesus strongly critiques the Pharisees. He says, let me give you an example. He says, you, you guys are like, well, you're like a cup that's filled with all kinds of gunk and sludge and nasty stuff, and you just wash the outside of the cup. So you look good on the outside, but inside you are filled with greed and self-indulgence, he says. Nobody can see that, so you look good. He says, you're like a tomb. And it's like going up to the, the, the outside of a tomb and getting some new paint and painting it so that it looks really nice. So that, and that tomb just pops. But he says, the reality is the inside's filled with dead men's bones, and that's you. You look really presentable on the outside, but your inside heart well, it's, it's dead. It's, it's hypocritical. Jesus says the righteousness of the Pharisees, which appears breathtaking, is only skin deep. It's not real. It's not internal. And that's why in the next six sections that we'll look at in the next six sermons, he's going to talk about the difference in external righteousness and internal righteousness. He's going to say, you've heard it said, you know, do not murder. But I'm going to tell you, if you're angry with a person, you've committed murder in your heart. That's a different level of righteousness, a different standard. He's saying, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I'm going to tell you that if you've lusted after another person in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. Jesus is not relaxing the law. Jesus is not lowering the bar. He is raising the bar. He describes a righteousness that is greater than the Pharisees because it's not just concerned with outward behavior, but it's concerned with with a changed heart, and it's concerned with a standard that we could never meet. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He calls us to repent of our sins, and he shows us that our sins is not just what we do, but what we want to do. It's not just our actions, but our desires. So we think we can clean up. This is so natural. We think we can clean up real nicely and be okay with God. That's what the Pharisees did. But when we see his opening call in chapter 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what he's really saying is repent from your sins. But you know what? Also repent from your righteousness. He's saying turn from your own righteousness. Realize that you never could meet the standard that is required. You can certainly clean up and look good and impress others and make people think you're holy, but God who knows your heart knows that you fall short and that I fall short. This is the kind of righteousness that he's calling us to that is higher than the Pharisees' righteous because it's a different kind of righteousness. It begins with being poor in spirit, with seeing our need from God. It's the kind of righteousness that we can never accomplish, but we can only receive as a gift. This is the key. The righteousness Jesus calls us to is one that we can never accomplish on our own, but we can only receive as a gift because of his righteousness. He gifts us his righteousness. Now you may think, okay, the Pharisees, I know they were hyper-righteous, but is this really relevant today? Repent of our righteousness? What, what, is that a relevant topic for today, or is it just the Pharisees? 
an organization called Lifeway and an organization called Ligonier uh, have done three surveys over the last four years and are tracking sort of the direction um, of theology among evangelicals. So what they do is they take a number of theological statements and then they ask people who are uh, self-defined evangelicals if they believe them, if they agree or disagree. So an evangelical is not a voting block, but it's rather a group of people who believe that the Bible is God's word, that Jesus is God, that Jesus died for our sins, that we need to believe in Jesus, that we receive forgiveness through him. So it's the basics of grace. It's basically believing the gospel. So these are people who say they are evangelicals. They put this statement to them. Uh, it's a large survey pool. And they asked them, they said this. No, they didn't ask them. They made this statement, agree or disagree. Everyone sins a little but most people are good by nature. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 52% of evangelicals agree with that statement. Jesus does not agree with that statement. Jesus has just said, I'm raising the bar so that everyone is guilty. See, if that statement's true, that we all sin a little, God's the doting grandfather, he winks, boys will be boys, I get it. And just sort of lets us go because we're basically good. And as long as we've done enough good to outweigh the bad, at the end of the day, maybe God's slightly disappointed, but he's going to say, come on in. You made it. You did the best you could. That's the view. More than half evangelicals in the U.S. believe that's true. So we do need to repent of our righteousness if we hold that view. We, we do need to repent. If, if, if we're good... If we can be in relationship with God based on our goodness, then what is God Almighty doing in the flesh, hanging on a cross, suffering and dying? Why? For the few really bad people? No, he's doing that for everyone, for every one of us who put our faith in him. Do you see that? That The Bible says that we aren't good. The Bible says that he who knew no sin, Jesus is good, knew no sin. He who knew no sin came to be sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. The Bible says, that's 2 Corinthians 5, that our sin is put on Jesus and his righteousness is credited to us. The righteousness that is higher than the Pharisees and the scribes is the righteousness that is earned by Jesus that is given to us as a gift through faith. That's the great exchange. We need the righteousness that God provides. Jesus doesn't come to lower the bar. He raises it. He doesn't abolish the law. He fulfills it. He does what we could not do, and then he declares us righteous and changes us. So we're made right with God based on what Christ has done, but the story doesn't end there. He declares us righteous when we believe in him. We're made right with God. But then he puts his law in his heart, in our hearts. He puts his spirit in our hearts, and he begins to change us so that we increasingly do obey him. Here's one of the most powerful promises of the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. It's found in Jeremiah 31, 33. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's saying, I'm going to do something in my people where I'm going to ultimately declare them righteous, but I'm going to put my law in their hearts. It's not going to be clean up on the outside. I'm going to change them from the inside. Ezekiel 36, he says something very similar. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone 
from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws. See, we come by faith saying, I need God. Blessed are those who see their need for God, who see there's a righteous standard I could never meet. God, I repent of my sins. I turn from them. I repent of my good works, trying to make myself right with you, trying to earn your favor. I repent of all those works and say they're junk, they're trash. I turn from them because they do not make me right with you, and I just receive your gift of righteousness. Jesus died for my sins and was risen again. When that happens, God's Spirit gives us new life. God begins to work on the inside of us so that from that point we can begin to obey Him. The difference is we're not seeking to obey Him to be accepted. We're already accepted because of Christ. And now based on that acceptance, we're trying to live for God's glory by the power of His Spirit. And He does that by changing our desires so that we want to obey Him. Gives us His Spirit so that we're free to obey Him. And then the story of redemption, we're drawn into it. We are his children, we're part of his kingdom. He's, he's calling us to be salt and light, and he's empowering us to do that so that we can tell other people, none of us meet the standard, but God, by grace, welcomes us into his family by faith. And then our lives change so that we reflect Christ more and more. And one day the king will return, and forever uh, all he, he will be with us in the new heavens and the new earth, restoring all things. It'll be more glorious than we can imagine. And until that day, the part of the story is we're to live faithfully in all of our callings for him, walk out our faith daily with him, and call other people to know this good king who gave his life for us, who takes the penalty that we deserve, welcomes us into his family, and that we are now part of his mission, confident in his spirit to empower us to live as a light in a dark world. I'm going to get into a, numbers of specifics in the coming weeks about how does this flesh out in our lives with regard to anger and lust and various things like that, because that's what Jesus talks about next. But I just want to close with this. If you have never trusted in Jesus alone, if you've never come to receive his righteousness for your sin, then I want to charge you, call you, invite you to do that today that you would come and say, this may be a new concept for you. Uh, you come and say, I need you, God. You may be here pursuing, investigating Christianity. We're glad that you're here. If you're kind of finding out about Christian faith, the Christian faith, we're so glad that you are here. But can I save you some time? Let me just save you some time and say, guess what? You can't come to church enough. You can't be a good enough employee, a good enough husband or wife or parent or grandparent, a good enough kid. You can't be compassionate enough. You can't give enough money to charity. Um, you can't become honest enough. You can't make amends with your broken relationships enough so that at some point God goes, okay, now you're in. It will never happen. You cannot be right with God by pursuing religious righteousness. You must come to him and recognize, you must turn and recognize you need the righteousness he gives as a gift that he obeyed in your place to fulfill the law. That's what this passage is about. That he died in your place to take the curse of the law. That's what this passage is about. And that he came to give a righteousness that is perfect, that he gifts to you, not one that you earn by cleaning up yourself on the outside to look good to others. That's what this passage is about. He gives, I call you today to turn and say, I'm turning from all my sins, but I'm also turning from my good works. I'm not trusting my works. I'm going to trust the work of Jesus alone and come to him by faith. 
and then you will find God will give you new life. He'll begin to give you new desires. He'll begin to enable you and empower you by his spirit to begin to live more and more for him. Uh, but you'll never be able to do that on your own. You'll only do that once you are in, once you are declared righteous, once your sins are forgiven, once you're made new, then you begin to live the life God's called you to in the kingdom. Entrance to the kingdom is not based on our righteousness. That's verse 20. It's based on blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who see their need and come to receive his righteousness. If you'd like to do that today, you just pray. You, give, you con- communicate that to the Lord and tell him, Lord, I turn from myself and I want to receive your righteousness. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.